This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Hello and welcome to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Nick Ashburn. And I'm Sandy Hunt. And we join you here live every Thursday morning um, here on the East Coast from 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern. And we are replayed throughout the week. You can also find us on demand on the SiriusXM app. Without further ado, let us welcome Cheryl Heller, the founding chair of Design for Social Innovation and the author of the Intergalactic Design Guide. Welcome to the show, Cheryl. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. So... We have had other designers on the show, folks who have, you know, maybe some similar backgrounds. But let's talk first about you and, and tell us a little bit, bit about your, you know, your past and your work history. Sure. Well, I've spent my life as a professional designer and writer helping organizations design change. That's meant large corporations helping them grow and launch new products and divisions and transform their brands. And I was also concurrently helping mission-based organizations achieve their missions and working with foundations. And I saw that financial strength and the creation of social value aren't conflicting agendas, that they need to be the same. And I also saw that design education didn't prepare people to work effectively on these issues. So uh, when the chair of the undergraduate program at the School of Visual Arts invited me to teach, I decided to create a class specifically to fill that gap between what designers are taught and what's needed to make them effective in the real world. Five years later, that insight led to the first MFA program in social design, and that was nine years ago now. What's interesting is that about half our students come from non-design backgrounds. Mm -hmm. We've attracted economists and engineers and MBAs and clinical nurses and social scientists as well as designers. And our graduates are now out working everywhere in federal and city government, global corporations, health systems, NGOs, and their own businesses leading change. And so, Cheryl, tell me a little bit more about what designers typically learn, right? Like, what are some of the core competencies or key skills that they're learning that you want to bring to the social sector or that, you know, those non-design students are looking to get? Sure. Uh, they learn technology, uh, they study things like artificial intelligence, which one student used to create a Facebook bot that helps people with limited computer skills who maybe don't speak English as a first language navigate job searches. They learn virtual reality. All of these things they learn in a way to integrate them into the social design process. Uh, they also learn game mechanics because that's a big uh, it's, a, it's a great technique for learning and engaging people in different ideas. And then they learn the soft skills of communication design, which is really the foundation of all change, critical thinking, and leadership. So let's shift to a story that sort of helps to illustrate the power of this design thinking when put to work for impact. Can you tell us a story, Cheryl, about um, you know a particularly you know, whether it's a, was it a student project or um, one of your, you know, long list of impressive clients um, that really used these, you know, these design methodologies to change the way they executed their social impact? Sure. There's a great example close to home in Philadelphia. Uh, Brown Superstores, founded by Jeffrey Brown, 
has used the social design process to do what other grocers considered impossible. He's built a large, very successful for-profit business selling suburban quality food to people in the poorest neighborhoods of the city. So the social design process relies less on long-term planning than real-time observation and feedback from what's happening on the ground. Jeffrey Brown will tell you that his real agenda is to use his grocery stores to end poverty in these neighborhoods. And he gets his inspiration from the community, and he's constantly experimenting with ways to inspire healthier eating habits, to teach people how to shop smarter by helping them translate food labels, uh, and he even experiments with ways to reduce gun violence in the neighborhood. So the result is more than a thriving business. He's created jobs in these neighborhoods, including a third of his workforce who were formerly incarcerated. So, and how did design show up there? Like, was it, you know, did he do different things to do the store layout, the hiring, f- education about food? Like, il- illustrate for, for our listeners a little bit of the sure. design process at play. The, the store layout is fairly typical, but he experimented with things like moving food to different places on the shelf to see if he could encourage people to um, buy healthier foods. The design process includes working with the people that uh, he's trying to serve, getting ideas from them, testing ideas from them, uh, and it includes this rapid prototyping process that he uses all the time. Right. So just, I think, to, to unpack that for our listeners, you know, does it seem like, you know, was he not just sort of interviewing you? I think you said ob- observation as one of the techniques, too. So was he sort of watching customers interact with the products, you know, on the shelves and seeing like, OK, eye level makes sense or like actually going two shelves down you know what were sort of some of the insights that maybe he he saw from that technique he's absolutely observing what people do but what's different is that he's doing it as he goes along so most most um, most businesses rely on long-term plans to decide what to do and they pretty much track according to those plans In the social design process, we talk about making to learn, and so you collapse that stage of experimenting with planning for what you're going to do next. Uh, So he looks at how people, whether they read labels or not, he looks at the kinds of foods they pick and whether they're healthy for them. He, a woman, talked to him about uh, the fact that a lot of people in these neighborhoods have been in prison and they can't get work, and they said, why don't you help solve that? And so Jeffrey Brown took that on, but he does it again through this process of observation and prototyping and experimentation. And what does that look like on the hiring side? He has started an organization, uh, a nonprofit organization called Uplift, and he it's very difficult to get into. There's a long waiting list, but he guarantees people jobs, and they learn not only how to manage a grocery store or work in a grocery store, they learn all the soft skills of how do you collaborate, um, how do you work with other people, how do you become a leader, how do you manage a dairy department. And I'm curious, Cheryl, you know, one of the things, I mean, that all sounds fantastic. Um, And we sometimes see these situations bring business leaders to a point that they are forced to make a trade-off between earnings and or revenue and uh, their social impact. So as you talk about 
all that soft skills training. That sounds wonderful, but that means he's paying someone to come in and do that, or he's making it a bigger portion of his uh, employees' time to commit to that sort of professional mentorship. Talk to us about, you know, the sort of profits versus purpose, how you see, um, you know, how how you've seen that decision-making, and um, if that's a myth you'd like to bust. Um. What's interesting about Jeffrey Brown in this case is, and every leader who is succeeding in doing this, and there are other examples like Interface Carpet Company, um, that's a public company, there is no margin for error in terms of remaining a sustainable business. There is no margin for error. If you've owned a business, you can't help anyone. Um, But what you're constantly doing is, looking at the ultimate outcome that you want to have and and reframing problems in a way to get there. And it's not a straight line, and it doesn't happen quickly. But one of the things that Jeffrey Brown says all the time, regardless of how intractable the problem seems, is that sounds like a problem that could be solved. Well, it hasn't been solved by most other people, but he's really brilliant at looking at it in a way that allows him to to achieve social value at the same time he's making money. And he's really clever about the way he runs a business. There's not a lot of margin for error in the in the grocery business. We're speaking with Cheryl Heller, who's the founding chair of Design for Social Innovation at the School of Visual Arts and also the author of the forthcoming book, The Intergalactic Design Guide. And Cheryl, um, I really appreciate the examples of the grocery store because I even think Many of our listeners may not fully grasp, including myself from earlier days, that like your grocery store experience has been pretty well designed, especially at the bigger corporate chains. Mm-hmm. Um, and so sort of bringing it home and, and saying, like, how could you even tweak that sort of profit maximization motive of design in, in that sense and take it to another level to be like, how could we encourage healthy eating? How could we encourage hiring practices? I, I think that's a really great um, example. Right, because there's this knowledge that can be predatory or positive, right? Like, you know, I don't know the details, but I've, I have read reports of, you know, what height level shelving mm-hmm. um, attracts children and how many times children ask for a product by name on average before the parent purchases it and character collaborations and different things. But if you took that, you know, sugary cereal with character X on it and replaced that eye height level with clementines or whatever, like what would the impact be? Um, so it's very interesting stuff. I, I have to say I, I need to pause with the example for a minute to ask what makes this intergalactic <laughs> because um, I, we were sort of, you know, this is the first yeah. time we've had to say that word on dollars it, and change. And so. I've stumbled a couple of times. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, so what makes it an intergalactic design guide, this, this new, uh, new book? Well, the title was inspired by a quote by David Orr, who's a really wonderful environmental writer. And almost a quarter of a century ago, he said that as Homo sapiens entry into any intergalactic design competition, human civilization would be tossed out at the qualifying round. And Like we I don't thought, cut the mustard. <laughs> our civilization is unsustainable. It's toxic. Um, and I thought at the time, well, he's laying this all at the feet of design. And then I thought, well, maybe design can fix it. Uh, so that that's where the title comes from. Got it. And and Cheryl, can you help our listeners understand? So so we've talked a little bit about sort of profit maximization and and the 
what I think that leads me to I think putting on my design hat is are the constraints like designers don't just get to work in a free for all world with no boundaries and, you know, no budgets, etc. I mean, we like to be sort of uh, divergent in our thinking and then narrow in. But how do constraints um, play into design for social innovation? When this is done well, there's an enormous amount of rigor. And it's actually the constraints that inspire creativity. The more specific, the more specifically you understand a place, the more specifically a challenge is defined, the greater the number of ideas that you come up with. And those constraints can be... Uh, financial, they can be limits in any other kind of resources or the willingness of, of someone to to change. But, you know, for example, if, if and one of the things we work on in the program all the time is, is helping people get concrete enough to actually act on something. So if you say you want to end violence, right, and you get a bunch of experts together, you're going to get people who've done it in other places and they will have ideas that have worked somewhere else. If you say, I want to work in this neighborhood on this street with gang X and gang Y at this time of day, all of a sudden it opens up enormous concrete ideas for how you can address that. So it's the specificity of the limitations that actually drives this process. Thank, I think that that's a terrific example. And so when you think about, you know, our listeners who may work in the social sector, you know, thinking about nonprofits and government, maybe they do work in a for-profit environment and they're saying, wow, I, I could think about, you know, a pain point in the world and see what within my power I could change within my business. Where would you recommend they start? What might they, if they're reading the Intergalactic Design Guide, what, what would be step one? Step one is clarifying what it is you want to accomplish. And and it has to be defined in a way that includes every aspect, the financial as well as the social aspect. As I said, what's, what's remarkable about Jeffrey Brown is he uses his grocery store business to attack problems of poverty and poor health. So what does that look like in practice, Cheryl? Is that a mission statement? Like when you say it has to include mm-hmm. all of your aims... We call it a promise, okay. and the promise is a, an actionable form of a mission statement. It includes the commitment you make uh, to everyone that you are inviting to participate in this, everyone you need. Can you give us an example, even a hypothetical? Like, What would this sound and look like? Uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, Seventh Generation is mm-hmm. a wonderful company. We all know them. They, uh, they had mission statements. They had the promise of their name, which is, comes from Iroquois law. And they were going to um, revive conscious consumerism, you know, influence the world. They were going to save the world. And the reality is that they make laundry products, wonderful products, and, and toilet paper. And nobody at the company knew what that meant, right? It's a lovely thing. I want to go to work there. But, but what does that mean I do every day? And the promise that we came up with is that they wanted to be the first company to make being green the new normal. And that sounds vague, but when you think about it, it demands that the products you make are affordable to everyone. It can't be elitist, which most um, eco-products 
are. The distribution needs to be broad enough. You need all of a sudden you can start to use that to define what categories you're going to be in, where you're going to sell, and the price points. It does remind me um, from my my days at IDEO.org. Like you sort of think about you're unpacking it. I mean, you are it's really peeling back the layers of the onion. So while that did sound initially kind of high high level mm-hmm. vague. The more you think about it, it's like, well, how does that work? That's the next level question. What are the key things that I need to have in place? And then you start, I mean, then even those constraints start to be um, highlighted Mm -hmm. so that you sort of know what's within your power and what's not. Is that an accurate um, reflection? That's an example of the constraints becoming the inspiration. Right. Mm -hmm. And and you, the next step is to think about, all right, what needs to be true if I'm going to deliver on that or if we're going to deliver on that? Yeah. And Cheryl, that sounds like a very powerful um, uh, what is the word you used? Not mission statement. Promise. 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 It's a very powerful yeah. promise and right, launches a lot of specificity and okay, how do we get there? And you can put those tactical plans in place. How do you, how do you get to that promise? Like that is a particular, that has a very strong point of view. Is that uh, leaders of the company, is it something that uh, you do a like sort of user design experience on with all employees or all stakeholders. Tell us about how do you get to that promise? You, you absolutely uh, give everyone who needs to help make it true a, a voice in that. And it doesn't mean you talk to 10,000 people if you have that big a company, but you, you start with the leaders who represent the company. And, and it's difficult. You need to craft. Most, most organizations start out with something very generic. Uh, and it's a lot of work to get to the language that really is concrete enough to demand this action. And it's an art and a skill. It's very difficult for people to do on their own. It's wonderful to have someone to be a thinking partner and to reflect because uh, you just get lost in your own corporate head, and we're all used to using cliches and sound bites um, that make it more difficult. And but Cheryl, it, but it, no, go ahead. It, it's it is the most important step because everything comes from that. And Cheryl, I, I want to talk of, about the a few of the other types of steps that one might find in the intergalactic design guide, but I wanted to get your sense. Um, you, you talked about sort of a corporate mindset, or you alluded to that. And what I found in working with very sort of sometimes our own Wharton students and how they're trained or, you know, other business leaders, maybe they're in big consulting shops or investment banking, they they have a really hard time with this sort of trust the process, you know, emergent solution type mm-hmm. of, pro, uh, you know, step-by-step guide. How do you work with clients on on sort of like be comfortable? It's a, the the solution isn't like we crunch these data and here's the here the here's the here's the five year plan, right? Yeah. Well, it's a very real, very big deal, and I think I have a lot of conversations with um, you know big organizations who are trying to embed this process, and I feel that we just need to recognize. The, the, the kind of shift that is taking place and what we're asking of people. It's not enough to say this is a really cool process. You know, you're going to get markers and post-it notes. We need to recognize that we are pulling the rug out from under some really basic foundational, you know, points of comfort for people, right? 
we're asking people not to try to come up with an answer in advance. And right. that's what business has been looking for. Business, business thrives on decisiveness, right? The person who says, I got the answer, um, you know, get, gets all the attention at the meeting. That's hard to change. And I think just recognizing what we're asking is a big first step. And, and I think that highlights something for me. One of the things that I've always said around the design process, design thinking, human-centered design, whatever you want to call it, um, one of the key attributes, it, you know, there's there's the creativity side that everyone, you know, like the post-its and the Sharpies, like that's mm-hmm. sort of when you're like, we're going to brainstorm and we're going to be cool. And that's what design thinking is. That's a, that's a part of it. Um, there's also, you know, prototyping, as you mentioned, like, you know, what, how do you make things quick and dirty? How do you just get feedback? How do you close that feedback loop? How do you fail fast? All of that. I think that's another key component. But one of the things that I really think about in terms of design is, is synthesis. You know, how do you take all of those stakeholder interviews and conversations? How do you, you know, do rapid prototyping and, mm-hmm. and pull the feedback? But how do you really synthesize all of those different data points and, and make those into meaningful insights uh, that drive, you know, you toward that solution, right? You didn't come up with it in the beginning, but through this process, you're just always collecting data and then you're synthesizing it and moving forward and failing fast and often. Um, how does that sort of concept fit into your book? It's a big part of it, and um, in the book, I've translated the process that usually is in categories or labels of immersion and then ideation Mm -hmm. to a series of questions uh, that drive the process from one step to the next. Um, You know, and we've talked about some of them already, right? Why are we here and what are we really trying to do and what needs to be true? And in answering these questions, it drives the, the, the development of insights, right? What does this really mean? You know, there are exercises that people use to cluster and things like that. But in the end, it takes real critical thinking. People who are immersed in the culture inside the company and outside the company to, to really think about what it means and what the implications of that are. And, and so what are a couple other, you know, or maybe just one other concrete step that you guide people through with the book? To me, we, this is related to the process, but communication is the energy that makes all of this happen. And developing, understanding how communication works at every stage is critical. Communication works first to define something, right, to find the words that contain the idea. Then communication works to create understanding among the people who need to participate. And then communication works in a different way to engage people in it. And, and maintaining that flow of communication, making sure that everyone, who, everyone who's involved has all the information they need to make intelligence, intelligent decisions and to, and to continue to contribute their voice to the process is a key. Very cool. Thank you, Cheryl. We've got only a couple more minutes, so I want to ask maybe our last question here. Uh, one of the concepts you cover in the book is disrupting the notion of quote-unquote experts. Mm-hmm. And so for our listeners, whatever line of work they're in, um, or if they're not working, as they as they look to you know navigate life, uh, we all have this traditional uh, reliance on experts. Right. What is your advice for experts? you know, everyone who's listening to be able to do to challenge that thinking uh, consistent with your design methodology? 
the the big opportunity with social design is to develop the capacity within your own organization to do it. This isn't something that somebody from the outside can do. This is, isn't something that somebody can solve for you. The way that these things happen is to embed them in everyday business. And so the soft skills that we've been talking about need to reside in the people who are doing the work. The good news is that participating in this process develops the skills in people. So you want to look for people who can guide you through the process and facilitate, but you can't hire a company to go out and do a campaign that's going to make it happen. <clears throat> and the, you know what I would like everyone to know is it's doable, right? I, I wrote this book to be a guide to take some of the intimidation out of it and to try to map the process so that people see that, that they can step up and be leaders of this kind of change. I love that. And I, I sort of want to leave our listeners with sort of this sense that it's also designed with. It's not designed for, mm -hmm. it's really designed with. And and I think that's a great piece of advice. So Cheryl, um, I guess I do have the last quick question, and that's when is the book coming out? When will be people be able to find the Intergalactic Design Guide to help them guide design uh, social design? Uh, it will be out on October 18th, and um, uh, I think it's possible to pre-order them now. All right. Well, be sure to Google that, and I'm sure you can find it online. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Cheryl Heller, who's the founding chair of Design for Social Innovation at the School of Visual Arts and the author of the forthcoming book, The Intergalactic Design Guide. We're going to take a short break, but stick with us. After the break, we'll be talking with Crystal, who's the director of strategy at Carnegie Mellon University in Kigali, Rwanda. This is Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.